This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning. Welcome to the Resolution Foundation for this event on our publication out today, Green Growth, Miracle or Mirage. We're going to focus on how cutting down carbon could give the UK economy a cutting edge, an economic cutting edge, as well, of course, making a massive contribution to tackling climate change. This is part of our wider Economic Inquiry 2030 project, and we are delighted to be doing this in partnership with the London School of Economics. Uh, and our first speaker, the lead author of our publication today, is Anna Valero, who is Senior Policy Fellow at the Centre for Economic Performance. We'll hear in a moment from Anna, and then I'm delighted that we've got Dame Julia King, Baroness Brown, Chair of the Carbon Trust to speak, and also Mike Biddle, who is a, a Programme Director for Industrial Strategy Challenge Funds at Innovate UK. Anna, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to present our report, which we've released today. It's called Growing Clean, and we'll be identifying and thinking about how we can invest in sustainable growth opportunities across the UK. I thank all my co-authors at the Centre for Economic Performance and the Grantham Research Institute at the LSE, and we're very grateful for the, for the funding which comes from the Nuffield Foundation, which has enabled this work. This is the decisive decade for net zero. We know that reaching net zero by 2050 is going to require accelerated and deeper emissions reduction in the 2020s. This requires substantially increased investment and it's going to involve change across the economy and its systems and this change will affect firms and households across the country. This is all occurring against the background of over a decade of stagnant living standards, particularly weak productivity and large-scale inequalities across the country. We know that increased and well-targeted investment is needed to address these underlying challenges. And of course, we've had other major shocks and change this decade. How can investments for net zero help to drive strong, sustainable and more inclusive growth? Well, we know that innovation and its diffusion will be critical for reaching net zero. And these things matter for growth. We've already seen the power of innovation in renewables, for example, bring the costs of solar and wind down and in batteries as well. This chart from the CCC shows that around 85% of decarbonisation to 2035 is going to involve low carbon technologies or fuels, either alone or in conju conjunction with behaviour change. Both the invention of new technologies and the deployment of new ones will be required. And this will generate opportunities for those who develop clean products and services to serve growing domestic and global markets, as well as via improved resource efficiency and broader benefits, not least improving energy security, and cleaner air and all the associated co-benefits. But given a series of market failures and path dependencies and innovation systems, such opportunities won't necessarily happen without the right, right policy frameworks in place. And policy will also have to address the important distributional aspects, given that the transition will affect different people and places in different ways. We argue that achieving sustainable growth requires net zero to be embedded in a new economic strategy for the UK. This will need to involve the appropriate incentives, regulation, government spending and participation from civil society. 
Within this, policy choices and specific areas will need to be informed by a hard-headed assessment of the UK's opportunities based on its underlying strengths and potential strengths and how they can be unlocked. This is the focus of our report and of our ongoing research agenda. So we begin by considering what are the UK's clean strengths at a national level. Here we assess its relative performance in clean patenting and also in the export of green goods. We'll focus here on the patenting results. What we find is that the UK specialises in clean technologies overall, but we conclude it's not yet a clean tech superpower, though there are many opportunities it can be built on. So here we're showing the extent to which the UK is specialised in clean technologies as measured by revealed technological advantage. This measure, shown on the y-axis here, compares a country's share of total innovation in a particular technology area to the global share. So values above zero here reflect specialisation. You can see that the bubble for clean overall um, is just above zero. We do specialise in clean technologies overall. This is also a growing area, as shown by the x-axis, which shows kind of how much this patenting has been growing globally over time. And it's a mid-sized category overall, as shown by the bubble size. But of course, within the overall clean category, there's a lot of difference in terms of the areas where we're particularly specialised. Um, in the report, we show that we have particularly high specialisation in tidal, offshore wind, nuclear and CCUS technologies. In volume and specialisation terms, however, while the UK is a major player, other countries are ahead, including Germany and France, which are typical comparators for us. We come to similar conclusions in our analysis of traded green products. We also employ a new methodology that estimates the expected national returns from government support for innovation, including both the private returns to the innovators as well as knowledge spillovers to other firms. Here we find that UK returns on public investments in clean technologies appear to be particularly large in the UK. The return on clean innovations, you can see there are two different categorisations, exceed the average across all technologies, including the trending category, which includes cutting-edge fields like AI, 3D printing and biotech. Again, not shown here, but within the overall clean category, tidal and offshore wind categories generate particularly high returns within the UK. And also CCUS, smart systems and building fabric, are above average. We then turn to considering how clean activities and opportunities are spread across the country. We extend the methodology I just showed you um, to consider the regional dimension. Um, what we do here is we crudely divide the country into the innovation-intense regions, which contain the so-called golden triangle of Oxford, Cambridge and London, and the rest of the country. And we find a very interesting pattern. What we see is that investments in clean technologies both directly and indirectly benefit these less innovation-intensive areas. So here we've got the returns felt outside the Golden Triangle from investments in those same regions. And what you can see is, again, clean technologies generate quite a lot of return that is retained in the, invest in, in the region where the investments are made. But there's also this very interesting um, result, which is that when you actually make in investments in innovation inside the Golden Triangle, the areas outside the Golden Triangle also benefit via spillovers. And you can see again, this is appealing pattern where clean technologies generate particularly high returns. So overall, we, we consider that this analysis suggests that supporting investments in clean technologies across the country have the potential to drive growth and contribute to levelling up. We also explore spatial patterns in terms of clean activities, um, products and services more, more generally. So this chart shows clean patents intensity, 
where on the y-axis we say, okay, what share of a region's patents are in clean? So this is a measure of specialisation in clean patenting. And we find there's this broad negative relationship between that and regional productivity. And some regions stand out, Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire, for example. This is an area with quite a high share of its patenting being in clean technologies, but it's relatively low in terms of productivity. We find similar patterns in our other data sets that we use. So we consider firms offering clean goods and services, a more broad definition using data from the data city. And then we look within the high growth economy, so high, fast growing firms that are attracting equity investments. And we find that there's a similar pattern when you look at the share of those types of firms in clean tech versus productivity. And we use data for Bohurst there. And what you'll see actually, Cornwall and Ciliars, which you can see there, that actually stands out across all of those different data sets. We also highlight, using these data sets, the importance of services and the interplay between digital technologies and clean technologies, which is important for the UK's journey. In the report, we also conduct a series of what we call deep dives, where we have a closer look at key technologies in the UK's journey to net zero. So we look at areas where urgent action is needed this decade. These are zero emissions passenger vehicles, wind and nuclear energy, grid flexibility, low carbon heat in buildings, and CCUS, carbon capture usage and storage. Across these areas, we find varying evidence of pre-existing strengths, but we do highlight areas of opportunity in all areas. So for example, wind is an area where we have innovative strengths, but these could be better leveraged. What we have here is that revealed technological advantage measure, which I showed you previously, but we're ranking countries. And you can see that the UK has revealed technological advantage, as I previously mentioned, but it's not the most specialised amongst these core comparator countries. We do an analogous thing with um, exports of green goods, and that's what we show here on the right. So this gives us revealed comparative advantage in wind products or wind-related products. Um, and we can see here that the UK doesn't have specialisation. The UK is not in the top 10 most specialised countries, but it's actually not specialised in this area. Um, so actually Denmark leads on both of these measures, despite having smaller installed capacity of wind power compared to the UK. Given its innovative strengths, however, and the appealing patterns in terms of the potential returns, we consider that the commitments to ramp up domestic deployment in the UK could generate new opportunities here. By contrast, we look at heating, heating in buildings. This is an area where the UK isn't specialised in either of these measures. But in more disaggregated analysis, we find areas of specialisation in heat pumps, insulation. These things are going to be highly relevant for decarbonisation of the UK's building stock. We then turn to considering how the UK's financial sector, another key source of our strengths more generally, as we've shown in previous Economy 2030 inquiry reports, can help realise the clean growth opportunities that we're highlighting here. While most of the investment required for net zero is going to come from the private sector, the public and the private sectors need to work together to enable these investments. The efficient deployment of public finance and policy port can support can harness the UK's strong research base, and it will be essential in de-risking emerging sectors and ensure business ensuring business models are investable. We highlight also the importance of place in capital allocation decisions, having shown the regional patterns in terms of where activity is happening. And there'll be a key role for the UK Infrastructure Bank and for private finance working with local actors. While the UK leads in green finance policy and London ranks first as a centre for green finance, there are still challenges that remain. Overall, the UK lags behind some of its peers in sustainable finance raised to date. Um, 
And also we, in the report, we consider equity investment, which is key for kind of growth phase companies. And we show that while venture finance has, has grown in, since, particularly since 2015, the share of that going to clean tech companies has actually been falling, although there are signs that activity in this area is now picking up. For investment to flow at scale and pace, as is required for net zero, investors will need to have confidence in the policy landscape. Clear plans are going to be needed to bridge investment gaps in areas where progress so far has been slow, such as in the deployment of home energy efficiency solutions. Overall, in this section, we conclude that the UK has the appropriate top-down commitments to net zero and the first net zero financial system um, in place, but it's now essential that policymakers demonstrate how regulation, policy, public finance can be mobilised to support that ambition. So we conclude that the UK is not yet a clean tech superpower, but it does have the potential to build on its pre-existing strengths and access new opportunities. Net zero is not a silver bullet for reversing stagnation and addressing the UK's inequalities, but by embedding net zero into a new economic strategy for the UK, we will have the potential to both drive national growth and contribute to levelling up. Finally, this work has focused on firms and innovation. Future Economy 2030 inquiry reports will consider the jobs aspects of the transition. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you. Um, and really at the, at the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE, they have developed this incredibly powerful analytical tool on comparative advantage, which we are deploying as part of this economic inquiry. And it was, it's very granular and interesting. Who would have known that Nottinghamshire was quite so heavily specialised, given whatever the background absolute levels, in green technologies and many insights like that. Uh, if you do want to put questions to our panellists, do go to, uh, we're on Slido, of course, do go to the hashtag Green Growth, put down your questions and we will turn to them in a moment. But next we're going to hear from Dame Julia King, Baroness Brown, who is, uh, is, a, is Deputy Chair of the UK Committee on Climate Change, chairing its Adaptation Committee. Uh, she also has a range of other roles, including being a council member of Innovate UK and uh, director of the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. Julia, over to you. Uh, thank you very much for that. And uh, before I start, I will declare that I am a non-executive director of Ørsted, the uh, Danish uh, wind farm developer, uh, and also of uh, Series Power, the uh, UK um, fuel cell and electrolyzer company. Um, and I will refer to both those companies as I, as I talk to you. So Anna, as Anna has highlighted, this is uh, a complicated area and you need more than just uh, consistent government policy, but you do need consistent government policy and uh, clearly a good expectation that demand will follow. Uh, you also need academic excellence and um, many, of that, many of those patents, of course, will come from universities. But also that alone is not enough. We need the ideas, but we actually need the ability to exploit them in the UK. And one of the really big challenges I think we have in the green technology area uh, is that in many of these areas you need OEMs, you need original equipment manufacturers, uh, companies that have the experience and the ability to um, develop and sell really capital intensive uh, technology and often safety critical technology when you think of the rotors in, uh, in, in wind turbines for example. 
Uh, and we have a small number of companies like that. One of them is, is Rolls-Royce. Um, Rolls-Royce is the sort of company that can be successful in exploiting small modular reactors. So I think we're all hoping that that, that will be uh, a, a huge success for Rolls-Royce. Um, they have that background, they have that ability to invest and to get the trust of their investors that they can deliver complex technology projects of this sort using technology that is, is familiar to them. But, but of course, in offshore wind, we don't have any um, OEMs. We have the largest, still the largest global install base of offshore wind. Um, we will get overtaken quite soon, but it means we have more experience in operating and indeed in constructing <coughs> offshore wind than any other country. Um, but of course, that's all been done by, well, actually, most of it's been done by Ersted. Uh, and some of it has Vestas technology, so uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, Danish experience and Danish technology. So in the offshore wind area, we are going to be investing hugely in the future. We now have this uh, raised target of uh, uh, 40 gigawatts by, by 2030. Um, that's a, a huge future target, um, but we are going to be limited to the uh, supply chain opportunities uh, in, in terms of developing an offshore wind industry because we don't have um, this, this OEM capability. So we're going to need to be really thinking how do we exploit that operational um, experience and that capability? How do we exploit using data that we might have gained from uh, operating, experience operating and offshore wind farms? Um, it's also crucial, as, as has been mentioned, the kind of regulatory environment we have. And I think that gives us uh, particular opportunities in the power system, the electricity system. Um, we were one of the earliest countries to, to privatise our grid uh, and it's an area where we now need urgent change to uh, meet the green requirements. So we are really going to need now some inspired regulation. If we continue with conservative regulation around the grid, then this won't be the place that we get to exploit the potential advantages of the transformation, the early transformation of the grid in the UK that we're going to see. So we've heard that there will be a new systems operator in the uh, Queen's speech last week. Um, that could be a real opportunity uh, and it could be that digitalization and data sharing will enable us really to exploit capabilities in that area. But we are going to see our, I need to see our regulators behaving in a much more radical fashion than they have done in the past if we're going to be able to get the speed um, to make the changes we need. Uh, and we have the capability to support them, things like the Turing Institute uh, in the UK. But um, speed is going to be of the essence. And, and one of the things we need, I think, all our regulators to be thinking about is how do we make this key data in all of our systems, how do we make that much more open? Um, how do we get companies to share data and possibly in our regulated industry, how do we make companies share that data? Because that will be really important, I think, to some of the innovation that we can achieve. Uh, the car industry is in some ways a bit like the uh, offshore wind. We, we make a lot of cars, but we have very little in the way of our own OEMs who do their R&D here. So we really do need to be making sure we can continue making and assembling cars. So uh, if we're going to continue to export as many cars as we do now, then we are 
really needing to expand our battery manufacturing capability uh, to, um, to, in order to do that. Uh, and we don't need to be hearing one mega factory announcement um, every few years. We need to be hearing one mega factory announcement like the British Volt one every year through the 2020s if we're really going to maintain the kind of export of, of cars that we've had. Um, I think one of the areas for real optimism, and I'll, I'll really sort of end on that, is, uh, is the area of hydrogen. It's, uh, it's potentially going to be 20% of global energy supply by 2050. That's what Bloomberg think. Uh, we, the Climate Change Committee thinks it could be 20% of UK energy supply by 2050. So it's a niche, but it's a huge global market. And we have some pretty innovative UK companies in Johnson Matthey, in series power, in ITM power, to electrolyzer and fuel cell manufacturers. We've got the big oil companies who need to transition in the way Ersted has done over the last 12 years from oil and gas to, to green fuels. Um, and we've got brilliant UK academic expertise in electrochemistry and in materials. And we've got abundant offshore wind resource, um, and especially as we develop uh, floating wind. And we also have opportunities um, for carbon storage and for hydrogen storage. So we're well placed geographically, geologically, um, in terms of uh, having the intellectual and the skills capability to do this. Um, and this is an industry in the early stages of development. So we could become, with the right focus and investments, an OEM player and the power that that would give us in this field. But we need to move really fast because Germany is moving fast, all of Asia is moving fast in this area. Uh, and we need more demonstrators, but not just the initial demonstrator funding, the ongoing funding for the operation and learning from those de demonstrators. We need to be moving faster in developing a market for hydrogen. It's going to need subsidy. Government is moving in that direction, but at the moment it's all about consultations and uh, slow progress. And really, if we want to be a big player, uh, we're going to need uh, to get... Um, uh, our skates on. And I suppose one of the interesting things about series power is its business model. It's like ARM, uh, it's an IP licensing business. So although its business is about um, developing and designing um, fuel cells and electrolyzers, uh, it doesn't actually in ever intend to make them in large numbers. So it has licensed its technology to Bosch it has licensed its technology to Wei Chai in China. It's licensed its technology to Doosan in Korea. Um, it will make money for the UK, but it won't create huge numbers of jobs here as we go through the green transition. Now, that in some ways is a good way for a, a medium-sized company to expand because it doesn't need the huge amounts of capital that Rolls-Royce, for example, is going to need for small modular reactors. But it also has an impact on jobs in the UK. It isn't a job creator in the way that some of the other industries will be. So these are the kind of things, as well as the kind of patent base and things that I think the government really needs to be thinking about in its new science and technology strategy. Um, what does our current industrial base look like? And, and how can we leverage, where can we leverage that? And where are we not going to be able to leverage that? And where do we have real opportunities to build a new industrial base in some of these emerging industries. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Julia. And of course, those very shrewd comments bring out the links between this debate and the wider debate on what an industrial strategy might look like. Uh, and I do remember a conversation I had with the Treasury Minister saying, we've put all this effort into offshore wind and we've created a very successful Danish company, Ersted. And the minister said, oh, we, we never, we didn't think of it from that perspective. That's a very interesting perspective. It hadn't really occurred to me. And if you think of the amount of economic analytical power that went into designing contracts for difference and compare that with, I suspect, negligible input going into how does this then become the driver of a UK supply side and a new UK industry. I think you see both the strengths and the weaknesses of our approach to these type of uh, opportunities. Uh, well, we're now going to hear from someone who is at the sharp end of actually the public programmes that do crucially contribute to this. Mike Biddle, who is Programme Director for the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund at Innovate UK. Mike, over to you. Thank you, David. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you. So, so, yeah, so at Innovate UK, we've actually been looking recently at where the opportunities are that we think net zero will look like out to 2035, actually. So very, very similar sort of time frame to the uh, report that's out today. Uh, and when, in doing that work, we've been kind of looking at that uh, using four foundational documents. So one, which is the sixth carbon budget. Uh, one is the net zero research and innovation framework. Uh, and then the innovation strategy from the government, which was out last July and our own plan for action, which was out in November of last year. Uh, and what we've been doing there is thinking about, well, what are those opportunities where there's both the sort of carbon imperative, uh, but also the sort of business opportunity uh, for where the UK can benefit? So we think that that actually comes down to five areas, uh, and that's heat, uh, make and use, its mobility, its power, and then there's also the, the uh, agricultural side of things as well. So we've, the, the agriculture side, we actually cover more uh, in our health and life science portfolio. So for today, I'm gonna concentrate more on the sort of heat, make and use, mobility and power. So some of the things we were finding, very similar to the report, uh, which is encouraging that we're looking at the, the same base data uh, in terms of how we can make those differences. For power, we completely agree about the points uh, that uh, Julia's made as well around uh, carbon capture and nuclear uh, and the carbon capture that came from the, um, uh, from the report itself. Um, absolutely hydrogen and offshore wind. There's also the piece which I think comes through the, both the, the innovative regulation piece that Julia was talking about, but also that sort of whole system integration piece. How do all of these things come together? Uh, how do they interact with one another? Uh, and how do we make that work? Um, so I think there's the, the, those are the pieces that we were uh, thinking of in the, in the power sense. Um, for heat, we've obviously got um, over 30 million buildings in this country that we will need to decarbonise. 28 and a half million, those are sort of our, our homes and then sort of nearly 2 million uh, non-residential buildings. It's interesting that for some of that, so I think there are other technology opportunities um, which we've referred to around sort of the heat pump side uh, and also the insulation side. But also there's the piece there about sort of how do you position that? So a lot of the discussion tends to go around retrofit. Uh, but personally, I don't think about me retrofitting my house. I think about me renovating my house. Mm. And we need to think about when are those things that you're doing along the way with your home? And that's not going to work for all of the buildings, obviously. Um, but some of that is how do you then encourage people to do the right things at the right time? And I think there's a bit of an information asymmetry there at the moment. Uh, so some of those technologies, heat pumps, uh, but also you need these things to work together in your home. 
Um, and how do you actually know which ones you would go for? How do the developers know, actually? And some of the risk that they won't take is because they don't know uh, how that will work in the future. So there's, there's work that we have been doing, there's um, work that we've been funding in active buildings, we've been looking at how you actually uh, transform construction, and there's something there we think about how do we share some of that information and try and uh, in increase trust in the system. There's then an element of make and use. So for me, that comes down to how do we make net zero things in net zero ways? So we do have a manufacturing sector that's important in this country, uh, and we need to think about how does that transition to net zero. But we also need, we will need these net zero things, and that was some of the things we were talking about in terms of, or we've heard about in terms of the offshore uh, turbines, but also what with the capabilities we might need for hydrogen. So we've got to make those things, and we've got to make them in net zero ways. And if we can do that correctly and drive the right behaviours, then we can actually grow a UK supply chain, which I think is important. Uh, and that's not just about um, the manufacturing side, it's also about the design side, it's about the materials. It's about where do these, how do we recycle, how do we uh, think about the sort of circular economy for reusing some of these things. Because the recent crisis is only making, um, uh, in terms of the sort of global context we're in, uh, uh, post-Ukraine, the, the ability to get those materials is going to become even more important. Uh, so how do we make sure we have those access? Then for mobility, I think obviously there is the big drive towards electrification. Um, and that trend is not going to end. Uh, but there's also then the piece about how do we move around in terms of the digital transport side. So how do we help uh, people and goods move better? How do we actually think about that information flow, but actually how do we then uh, think about how can that be part of digital twins and understanding the system uh, more broadly? So those are the areas that we think uh, we need to do. Picking up on one, two final thoughts. One, the importance of demonstration. Absolutely agree with that. And I think the point there about, uh, that Julia made about learning from that demonstration and sharing it is very important. And then the other piece then is around the green finance side of things, which is how do we have the right finance models to enable some of this? Uh, and what's the difference between finance for green and green finance? Right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. <coughs> now we're going to put up our first polling question. Uh, just for, and we'll give you a little while to reflect on your uh, answer. I'll turn, come back to this in a few minutes. But you've got these options of where our opportunities are. And uh, it would be great to see from our participants which you go for. But meanwhile, I'm going to take some of the first batch of questions from Slido. And I'm actually going to group together three questions that have a similar theme, which is we've got a relatively small amount of public spend, although I'm sure Mike and his team spend it with extraordinary skill and wisdom. Uh, we have some other roles for public sector, like we've heard from, from Julia, things like regulation, but the big money is in private sector. So you really get effects if you link public and private together. Uh, so what can, what can smart public policy do? Here's the first question about uh, what incentives and framework the government should put together for this. Then we've got uh, another question in a similar vein uh, about um, how, how can we make this government take our net zero commitments to the uh, next level. Uh, and there was a third question which get, let's get back to uh, let's get back to Denmark a country 
that appears to have made more of a success of this, um, what we can learn from Denmark. So how can public policy most energise and drive private engagement as well? Anna, do you want to comment first? Well, I think, um, first of all, we know that generally the UK underinvests in R&D, and we've got this commitment to raising that to 2.4% of GDP, both public and private. Um, and we know that we're taking the lead on regulation. Um, but basically what the private sector needs is the right expectations and stability in the direction of travel. And obviously we've made a lot of progress there. But making all, as, you know, as was mentioned before, making all these systems work together, understanding how all the pieces of government policies and strategies link together is fundamental in my view. You know, we've got the levelling up white paper, we've got the innovation strategy, we've got all the various strategies relevant for net zero. Really these need to be embedded in, in something that can actually look at the UK's growth potential, the types of investments we need in skills, where they're needed, the types of infrastructure we're going to need in different places, the impacts on different places. Um, and actually, we highlight in the report there are benefits, for example, for having more place-based aspects um, in capital allocation decisions, try and maximise some of the benefits and minimise the costs. I think we actually refer to some Innovate UK on the, uh, work on that as well. Um, so it's about having the right regulatory frameworks in place, the right policies, and that sense of stability, which is something, as we've discussed before, on the industrial policy side, we haven't had that much stability in recent years. Right. Uh, Julia? Um, well, certainly in the House of Lords Science and Technology Select Committee, we've been taking evidence on what, uh, uh, what do we need to get to the 2.4%. And I think one thing that all companies have said to us is skills. Technical skills are in huge, hugely in short supply in this country, and we need much more action to support that. Um, comparing um, Rolls-Royce, which I worked for a number of years with, with Ersted, and my knowledge of Rolls-Royce from inside is not that recent, So, uh, my, but the Ersted is still 50% owned by the Danish state, and the attitude to risk in Ersted is very different. Ersted is making extensive investments into hydrogen um something you know faster than i'm seeing from i think bp and uh, and other companies in the uk um and i think there is just a a, a different um, approach and i think it also you know there is a very friendly major shareholder there who wants to see um this change happen uh, uh very fast um, and also, the Danish um, state is putting forward a lot of big um, decarbonisation programmes. We've got the Greenfields for Denmark programme. We've got the very innovative Energy Island programme, which is about building an artificial island, um, which is going to bring um, power from offshore wind and potentially have hydrogen production on it. Um, they're, they're going in for this at a much bigger scale than the rather timid demonstrators that we're, we're seeing uh, in the UK. I think the other thing a government, our government needs to think about is it's got to be able to take more risk and do things faster. This is a competition. Uh, other places are moving faster than we are in the UK. Thank you very much. Mike? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely uh, endorse the point about speed, actually, because I think this is an area where we were, we had the opportunities, we were doing things already as a country, but I think, again, Everybody else is recognising 2050, all of the uh, energy security. Everyone else is now running that race possibly faster as well. So that actually means we need to accelerate. 
I think for me, the bit about where all of this comes together and where government policy can help drive it is what are the things you're going to need to do anyway, and then how can you do that to do the right things in the right places? So some of the things that we've been funding through the Challenge Fund uh, in industrial decarbonisation, for example, which was looking both at sort of the use of hydrogen, how that interacts with carbon capture, utilisation and storage, by its very nature, doing those things which needed to be done, they were also going to be in certain places around the UK because of where that infrastructure is. And because of that, you then start to drive some of that local growth that, that was talked about, which I think you're seeing in some of your report. So I think for me, actually, what we need to do is to help government understand by doing the right things that it needs to do anyway, in the right way, it can actually drive some of its broader policy uh, perspectives. And I think one of those policy perspectives is absolutely the skills piece, which is, you know, great ideas can come from anyone and anywhere. And we do need this to be a whole sort of mobilisation of the UK. Uh, and, and mobilisation of all of the workforce. So I think that's that's going to be an interesting opportunity, I think. Thanks. Thanks very much. And, and uh, if I may just comment on that myself, I mean, I very much agree with Julia's point that... And I think this is an argument about the role of government, which Conservatives can understand as well. Government is the biggest bearer of risk that we've got. One of the roles of government, which oddly enough links the logic of the welfare state and the logic of some type of engagement, in crucial challenges like net zero, is it can take more risk than anyone else. It can take more risk than individuals can take and also more risk than companies can take. And that is a legitimate mm. and important role for government. And sometimes this isn't understood. I, always, I used to say, when I was involved in this with my officials, that sometimes when we're talking about public-private partnership, their model was if you think of those thermometers outside church on church towers trying to raise a million pounds to rescue the, the church fabric, I sometimes said, I thought the Treasury model was if everyone else had raised 900,000, we'd put in the last 100,000. But actually the job of government was to put in the first 100,000 and get everyone to follow in and put on the remaining 900,000. So if you wait to see that other people are willing to bear the risk as well, then you're not properly discharging the role of government. If you look at how Bayes is acting at the moment, it is quite interesting that in the outcome of the CSR, um, Two sectors that have done quite well are aerospace and automotive. And I think it's no accident that those have both got institutional arrangements, like the Aerospace Technology Institute, which bring together the public sector and the private sector. So if you've got something where government can see that public spending will leverage private spending directly, it looks as if when you're then coming to evaluate how you might spend public money, those type of institutional arrangements work. So one of my tips to people is try to learn from those two models in other parts of the economy because it looks as if they score highly when public policy and spending priorities are being set. I think we also need to learn from COVID. You know, the, ah, some yeah. of the good outcomes at COVID about putting some really powerful people, you know, into, into place to run task forces about yeah. putting money in to bring academics together start making them compete start bringing the best people together and say solve this problem here's the money to do it you haven't got to spend months and months applying yeah. for it yeah. um and and also take risk now there were some negatives where risks were taken in procurement that you know had some pretty bad consequences but there were plenty of other risks taken which had some very good consequences um, and actually we need to learn from that not to go down a route of becoming more and more cautious as I fear the 
procurement bill in uh, the Queen's speech may be taking yeah, us. That is a very powerful... The, the risk-bearing role and doing it quickly mm. do go together. And as you're right, COVID is an important example. Though even there, I think there was at least one occasion when the decisions on which grants to give to the high-tech companies to help with COVID, that decision was taken more rapidly than the subsequent allocation of a slot on the grid to announce the decision. So where the delays occur is a matter for lively debate. Um, now, let's see the answer to our first polling question, which was inviting people to identify what they thought would be the greatest opportunities for the UK. Uh, and renewables scoring very high nuclear scoring very low and this actually leads me into the q a so what i'd like to invite our panelists to do and i'll now start in, i'll start in reverse order with mike is comment on this assessment of where the greatest opportunities are and relate it i've had one specific question asking about nuclear why we um, and what we thought was the capacity for nuclear and that scores very lowly here and hardly been mentioned so far so mike Give us your assessment and the appraisal you mentioned you've been doing Innovate UK. How's that playing out? Yeah, so I'm a little surprised by nuclear being 6% on that poll, actually, because I think we do have uh, capability in the UK. And I suppose there's also then the difference. I mean, Julia's mentioned some of this as well. There's almost there's the difference between the gigawatt scale, but also the small modular reactors. So one of the things that we've been funding through the Challenge Fund was small modular reactors to develop exactly those capabilities. So, so I think in some ways it's almost... Um, I think you do need a base load. I think nuclear is an example of, of how to uh, achieve that. Uh, and it is also a great opportunity for actually pulling the supply chain together. And again, you can actually think about not only where those might be built, but also then where the uh, factories will be that will uh, create the technologies to do that. So, so I think that's probably a little more underplayed there than I'd, I'd have thought. I mean, the others in terms of renewables being the biggest, I think that, that, that makes absolute sense. I suppose in one way that's probably a bit of a catch-all for quite a few things because then you've yeah. got an element of is that the offshore wind, is it, um, is it tidal, etc. Um, so, um, yeah, I think all of those are ones where we think we do need to be progressing in the UK and we'll be looking to continue to fund in those areas, I think. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and, uh, Jude, especially as if uh, there is this issue of nuclear, and you referred earlier to small modular reactors, uh, and of course small modular reactors, you're the expert, but aren't, are, are themselves massive facilities. Mm. They're not tailor-made, but they're not... The fact that Rolls-Royce has got nuclear reactors in, its sub, in submarines isn't quite where SMRs are. So would, you might want to briefly touch on that, whether there really is a UK opportunity there or whether we're in danger of already having missed the boat. But uh, you give your reactions on the key areas. Well, I, I'm, I suppose I'm slightly sceptical about the renewables being so huge because I think you need to, you need to um, really get into the detail of that. So you know, offshore wind is going to be a big part of renewables. Um, where there are plenty of opportunities, but we're still playing at the fringes of, of that, um, even with, I think, um, floating wind, where we may get in a bit more with some of the, the bigger technologies. But even so, we're, uh, we're only just starting really down that line and others are, uh, are moving faster there. Um, and, you know, we, solar is not a UK technology, um, so I don't quite know what people mm. think the huge economic opportunity. There's a huge decarbonisation opportunity for us from renewables, but the economic opportunity is different from that. Um, I think there are huge opportunities in the grid, the grid management, the use of data. I hope that, that probably comes into the, into the renewables there. 
Um, small modular reactors, well, the jury is out on them, but, you know, we do have an OEM that is quite capable of, of producing um, really competitive products in a competitive global marketplace, and there won't be that many other competitors because the barriers to, to entry are high. So, you know, just as we do produce world-competitive aero engines, I think there is a chance we will, you know, we good chance we can produce world-competitive small modular reactors, but they'll, as you say, they'll be part of quite big bits of plant. Um, I think the challenge really is where they will go. And I think there will be, you know, it's not clear that the public want them, you know, outside every town kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, the opportunity for them in large um, industrial um, clusters uh, and the opportunity um, to be potentially making hydrogen alongside um, large industrial clusters, green hydrogen using nuclear, um, is an opportunity that, uh, that the small modular reactor may well play into. So... I think I think it's it's more of an opportunity for the UK than than that suggests. Yes. Thanks very much, Anna. Um, yeah, I think our analysis um, suggested there were these potential opportunities in a number of areas of renewables, but um, I appreciate the point as well. It's it's actually getting the manufacturing, the supply chains in the UK, which can be a challenge. But our main point there was that we've got these innovative strengths. We know we have to do massive extra deployment in a number of areas. We also highlight, of course, tidal, which is um, currently not a major area of focus, but an area where we do have strengths. Um, I think nuclear is an area we, in our report anyway, in the analysis we've shown, we've shown that the UK is already competitive there in terms of trade and also has these innovative specialisms in that area. Um, there are obviously key benefits of combining this with renewables because of the intermittency and in renewable types of energy. Um, I guess that there tends to be perhaps less opposition in the UK to nuclear as compared to other countries. Um, but, and it's also higher cost, but it's clearly important. Um, so we, we do highlight that as another area of opportunity in our report. CCUS as well. Um, this is an area where the UK does have strengths and it really does relate to a lot of our legacy strengths and experience in oil and gas and our physical infrastructure. Um, yeah, so it seems sensible to me. Um, green finance, I mean, connecting to our other report, you know, we are a services superpower. The UK's main exports are in services. Finance is a source of strength in its own right, but also through all the related business services that go with that. So I think this is something we highlight in our report. We need more in-depth analysis of the services opportunities in net zero, which is a bit harder to measure in the data, but it's clearly important for the UK specifically. Thank you very much. Can I, can I just follow up with, with Anna on that? Um, I'm intrigued in, when I glanced through your report earlier that this, this focus on tidal, um, and I suppose I'm interested to know what makes, I know we have a lot of, a big patent portfolio in tidal, but what makes you think that's such an opportunity for us? Because all of the major attempts so far to do anything in tidal have failed at the business case hurdle. I suppose it's, it's back to the point about COVID. You know, COVID was an urgent um, crisis and we managed to deal with it. If we know that we're an island and we have waves around us, there are, there are barriers and hurdles, but perhaps given the urgency of net zero and the fact that we also have relevant innovations in that space, more effort could be put into it. But I appreciate there are many but, but barriers. But business case has been looked at in this country a number of times and nobody has ever been able to make it come in at the right price. But isn't it also due... And look, I should de declare a kind of interest, and I used to be the MP for Havant on the south coast, and there was a lot of interest in tidal power around in the Solent. Isn't part of the issue that historically we've tended to think of great big barrages, which are controversial and also involve a massive amount of costs to assemble? If you mm. were able to move to a world in which 
you had smart turbines tethered to the seabed and you put them around this island. This is an island with an integrated national grid linking up the entire island. You only need them to be quite well geographically distributed and you've got peak tidal flows at some point in your, in your tidal power system happening at any one time. So I always found, found that kind of vision a very powerful one for the UK. Isn't that not one option for the future? It, it's, a very tough, um, it's a very tough call to get them to work in those conditions, yeah, for the long term. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm with Anna. Yeah. I still think... Um, and it, 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 you, you, if you, as soon as you think of it, 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 there are indeed design issues around turbines, yeah. but if you get those rather than great big... Barrages, we may be able to take that opportunity. Um, now, can I make a general yes. point there? I mean, a general point is, you know, we already know lots of the solutions and it's about deploying them and bringing the cost down. But of course, there's still a role of research into areas where we don't quite know the solutions. And I think we couldn't predict all the innovations that have affected our lives in the past. So going with David's point, maybe there are solutions that can actually create investable business models here too. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've got a, a few minutes left. Let's go to our second, I'm going to call up our second poll and then uh, lead to a um, question that relates to it, because this is important, and there's really interesting further evidence on this in the paper we've published today. So do we think that the net transition will help to level up the country? Uh, and uh, we've actually had a question which has been upvoted, I think, more than any other of the questions. Is there a risk that green growth initiatives will be distributed unequally across the UK. Now, Julia, you are Deputy Chair of the UK Committee on Climate Change, and I think it'd be very interesting to know to what extent you think it's part of your remit to consider the place levelling up angle, or whether that you regard as outside your remit, and um, your observations on the answer to that question. You're slightly out of date. I was Deputy Chair for... 12 and a bit years, but I stepped down from that in, at the beginning of this year. Right. So when I joined the Board of Ersted, because that was seen to be too much, obviously too much of a conflict. So I still chair the Adaptation Committee, but I'm not Deputy Chair of the Climate Change Committee anymore. Um, the uh, uh, Part of the climate change remit under the um, legislation is, is to look at impacts on um, UK um, economy and competitiveness. There isn't a specific... Obviously, from 2008, there isn't a specific levelling up, but it is something that uh, that the committee look at to an extent. You know, the sort of geographic distribution of where things where things might happen, uh, and I think you know there are real opportunities for to combine the the green growth with the levelling up because there's uh, a real focus on manufacturing. There's a real focus on the coasts. I mean, Hull and Grimsby is a brilliant example of the impact of the offshore industry with the Siemens blade factory in Hull and the um, Ersted, um, they have a big European um, operations and maintenance base on the fish dock in, in, in Grimsby, which is a place in desperate need of, uh, of further regeneration. And they now also have a, um, there's an also a technology activity that, that Innovate is involved in and the, the offshore renewable energy catapult involved in and um, Hull University also on the docks in, in Grimsby. And in fact, the, the impact of, of Siemens factory has been to reduce male unemployment in Hull by a factor of two. So 
there's a lot of you know coastal activity down on the south coast so um, lots of potential coastal activity around Wales areas that really need yep. this kind of sport and of course also lots of the northern um, industrial um, areas potential for regeneration with carbon capture and storage and of course Scottish coast as well very much part of the picture so there's absolutely obvious um, opportunities to, to really drive regeneration. Very encouraging and Mike how do you see that? So I, I, I think it will. Uh, I think uh, I think it will drive it across the country because I think just the, the nature of where the things are across the UK are in those industrial heartlands, and that's where we're going to need to be tackling uh, the emissions, um, as as well as the stuff on, on the sort of uh, east coast. There's also stuff we've been doing with St Helens actually. So the uh, Glass Futures is one of the things we've been funding, which is looking at uh, transforming foundation industries, and they were looking at that from a glass perspective. Um, and that's where some of the heartland of, uh, you know, where Pilkington started out and all that sort of stuff. Um, but actually thinking about what might be the new ways of doing the glass. How do you need to reformulate some of the glass if you're trying to go to different temperatures and, and things like that? So, so I think there are, it's almost like this country's kind of remembering what it had. Um, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, about time too, quite frankly. Um, and I think that's the bit that we will need to embrace across the country to, to make these things uh, better. Um, so I think even if you weren't trying to drive a, a place-based policy and a levelling up agenda, I think it naturally would happen. But I think you can actually get a, a really, really good win-win, you know, and, and really, you know, reinforcing overlap really between the two. Fantastic. Anna? Yeah, I mean, I would echo all of those points. I think the first point is about the endowments and needs, which we know for many of these projects, the initial endowments or the specific needs are spread around the country. We had a previous report with Grantham Research Institute and the CP where we explored a number of net zero line investments and showed that either the relevant projects, the relevant needs across the country were very spread out. But then there's where the activity is already located, which is, I guess, what we've shown in this report, where we're looking at where the business is doing these things are, where the innovators are located um, and I would also agree the key thing is that these investments generate the maximum local benefits so via jobs in the local areas by upskilling and training the local workforce rather than um, activity that actually the benefits the returns are felt elsewhere well three very optimistic answers on that let's just see if our wider <laughs> if our wider participants agree we'll see the result on the poll uh, see if people are believe that it can contribute uh, will help uh, <laughs> it can and it will 46 percent I, I, there's the there's the fantastically cynical 54 percent who think it could but it actually won't uh, there's a certain and um, very few people none of them who think it can it can't and shouldn't so everybody agrees there's a potential it's fine to balance as to whether we can seize that opportunity or not and maybe that's what we should focus on in the last few minutes and I'm going to ask each of our panelists in turn basically so what do we need to do if, if the um, if uh, uh, quasi quarting uh, we're here formulating energy policy and I suspect half of the anonymous participants in our uh, questioning may well be Bayes officials anyway. What would you be saying are the key things the government needs to do? Mike. So I think the bit there is to actually think about the different time frames of this because sometimes we can actually sort of focus on the look too far out and also look too close so I think we actually need to be thinking about what are the things we need to do now. So 
you know, almost it's like a set of sprints, actually. So what gets you to 2030? What's the research you need to get beyond that, uh, et cetera? So I think there are things, because the number of conversations I had with people go, well, we know how to do this. We just need to deploy the technology. We've already got them. OK, great. But then how do we do that? Uh, but also, that doesn't actually solve all of the problems. There are still you know, some tricky, hard to crack problems that need to be genuine research uh, across, the, across the piece to do. So I, I would say we need to be thinking about that as a continuum, both the things to do now, the things to be doing in five years, and the things to be doing in sort of 10, 15. Right. Julia? I would say take more risk and move faster. Excellent advice. Um, I'm going to add a really sort of narrow thing, but follows up. Then indeed, there's been a question about tidal power since our exchange. Um, apply contracts for difference to tidal energy in a way that was successfully deployed for offshore wind. And this time, think at the same time about the industrial strategy you need to create a successful UK tidal power industry would be something I would do. Anna, it's a fantastic paper and really strong on analysing comparative advantage, what would your advice be? Well, I guess coming, you know, from the perspective of our paper and its high level message, it really is about having net zero embedded in our growth strategy. I think we know that we have this urgent need to restore productivity growth to make it more fair, the link with living standards as well. Um, so that means, I think, learning also from some of the mistakes in the past where we've been good at something, but we haven't necessarily thought about how that can be translated in improving productivity and growth in the UK, nor the distributional aspects of that. So I think bringing these di different pieces together from the perspective of how net zero, you know, one question is how we actually achieve net zero. It's a massive challenge. The other is how we actually achieve net zero in a way that is consistent with these other objectives. Mm. Well, that, those, that's a fantastic list. And I think I feel obliged to add from the Resolution Foundation perspective and all the concerns that are at the moment, which we identified earlier on about living standards. If you just look at the importance of energy costs, heating costs, particularly as a high proportion of the budgets of low income families, that has to be a priority. And then when you try to find out what the drivers are, there's sadly been a serious reduction in the amount of public support for the basics of home insulation and uh, re uh, retrofitting housing. And oddly enough, something we haven't touched on today, though we have at other events here, is that just transforming our existing housing stock, take Mike's point, we mustn't just regard it as totally retro, but uh, something that ensures that our existing housing stock is more energy efficient. It doesn't sadly help with the living costs and the energy bills this year but it certainly does in the years to come and of course our housing stock is also very widely distributed geographically so it's another excellent leveling up initiative thank you all very much indeed for joining our event today thank you particularly to our panelists mike biddle dame julia king and anna valero and i hope you do have the time to read this excellent paper partnership between Resolution Foundation and London School of Economics. And you will see there the potential of rigorous analysis of comparative advantage to illuminate debates like this one. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.